This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, November 13th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. The feds run immigration, so is there anything states can do to make the country more welcoming to people who want to bring their culture, their families, and their skills? Josh Smith is a research manager at the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State. In Colorado Springs last month, we discussed policies states can adopt on behalf of would-be immigrants. The federal government has the authority over immigration to the United States of America. Uh, So what is left then for states to be able to do, or even cities to be able to do, to deal with or set rules for immigration? There's a lot that states and cities can do. It starts with this doing the simple things of making sure that refugees and immigrants have the tools they need to succeed and aren't prevented by laws that don't encourage permissionless innovation. So one example, Rosa Cerna grew up in Arkansas. She's protected through DACA. Her parents brought her to the U.S. when she was just a young girl. She grew up in the U.S., wanted to be a nurse her whole life, wasn't able to because when she started going to nursing school, went through the process to to apply, they told her, because of your status as a DACA uh, person in the U.S., you're not allowed to become a nurse in Arkansas. And that's a problem for a lot of reasons, not just because that's what Rosa wanted to do with her life, but because Arkansas, like many states, has a shortage of medical professionals. And so some of the rules around occupational licensing clearly prohibit and prevent immigrants from you know, applying trades that they know just as well as anyone who was born here in the U.S. Okay, so uh, remove a citizenship requirement for uh, certain certain licenses or certain occupations. That's one. That's one. And there's others simply as, as as simple as providing the exam to become a licensed practitioner in the language that those people speak, the immigrants speak. And one example is if you think about the stereotypical nail technician, you might think about a Vietnamese woman, and that's not entirely a stereotype. It's actually almost an accident of policy. The Vietnamese uh, language is one of the first uh, languages that they provided nail technician exams in. That made the policy that made more people go towards that occupation because they knew how to do it and they were able to take the exam and not be flummoxed by the language. If you think about this is when I talk about this research that we've done at the center, usually what I talk about is think about the Pledge of Allegiance. If I throw it up in Spanish, no one in the audience knows it. But everyone it's something they said growing up all their lives and they know what it is. And they're just not able to recognize it, just like immigrants who try and take these exams in their non-native tongues. So uh, that's to say nothing of just getting rid of a bunch of licenses to begin with. That's certainly true. (laughs) There's Uh, a lot of occupations that would benefit from that. So uh, with respect to cities and states becoming relatively more welcoming uh, to immigrants, what about housing policy? Yeah. One of the exciting things that's happening in cities like Buffalo, New York, that are taking in lots of refugees is that there are people who are fixing up old homes. You know, if you're a refugee, you move into an area, you can't afford to live in the nice part of town. So one example is Attica Rahman, who's a, a refugee from Iraq, moved to Buffalo, came there. The only place he can afford is on the bad side of town. He talks about walking down the street towards his house and there are shootings he can hear. There are prostitutes on the street. There are people who are you know, selling drugs. And he's thinking, what am I going to do? And, you know, all he does in the end is he puts a light in on the front of his house, moves people who are involved in illicit activities just a little bit farther away. He talks about creating community with his neighbors, saying, hey, 
you know, if you're not around, let me know. I'll watch your house for you. Simple things like that that happen in a lot of uh, places. That, you know, if you grew up in an area like, uh, then you know these kinds of things are common. But you know, those sorts of small changes end up being much more effective than the kind of economic development incentives. You know, they spend millions of dollars, and you know, all it turns out is you just get natural resurgence and revitalization of cities by refugees taking small actions. And it's probably underappreciated, but a refugee is coming from somewhere worse. That's right. And so even if they are willing to live in a neighborhood that is not uh, the best in terms of uh, crime uh, or just you know being, being pretty run down, the fact that those people can can build a life in a in a difficult situation and uh, improve a neighborhood is something that uh, should be appreciated. So, yeah. so beyond that, cities and states should also be trying to work with nonprofits that are doing work to provide job training, to provide uh, language training, and this is something that's already happening all across the country. Even in my small town, uh, there's a group that does language training. It helps people find. Uh, jobs. And, you know, we don't need some big government program to do that. Instead, if you're a business owner, try and find the kinds of jobs that refugees might be good fits for and go and find those organizations. They can help you staff positions that would go otherwise unfilled. In Buffalo, again, there's several business owners talked about doing exactly that. You know, they have positions that they can't fill and refugees start coming in and suddenly they have both markets because consumers want the products that they're making, but they also have workers so that they can actually run the business. It's almost a pejorative among some people. I take it as almost the opposite, and that's the the notion of sanctuary cities, cities that have uh, are within states that have decided, well, we're just not we're not going to take your money, and we're not going to enforce your laws. We're not going to assist with the feds enforcing laws. So, um, with respect to trying to be welcoming to immigrants. Some cities, maybe they, they want to be less welcoming to illegal immigrants, uh, and others maybe don't care. There's an interesting uh, area of this where sheriffs actually kind of disagree amongst themselves about sanctuary city policies. But I think the research is clear that sanctuary city policies aren't anything that people should worry about. Instead, they help promote cooperation between immigrant communities, and local law enforcement. So take, for example, one paper by Catalina Amuedo Dorantes and Monica Deza. They're both economists. They work on immigration issues, and they're specifically looking at the issues with domestic violence in cities. And they, they look at, well, what if I'm an undocumented immigrant and I am a victim of intimate partner violence of some kind? Or you witness it. Or you witness it. Right. What are you going to do if you face deportation? And it gets more complicated if you think about mixed status households. So if your partner who is abusive has status as a legal citizen and you are not, that opens you up to a lot of exploitation. And so these sanctuary city policies are encouraging women to come forward. And uh, Amuido Dorantes and Deza's research shows that it's actually reducing homicides against female Hispanics. And that's what you'd expect if they now can trust the police to come forward. Josh Smith is a research manager at the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State. We spoke last month in Colorado Springs. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.